All right. Or like in the mortal words of Pet Detective, all righty then. Here we go. So we're starting off in the Luke 5. We're back there again in the 27th verse. I mean, you know, we just, just the guy that was just, just let down, you know, from the, the paralyzed guy was just let down into the building. And Jesus said, you know, that those wonderful words, your sins are forgiven. And then he said, get up and walk. And, you know, in our heart, we need to believe that our sins are forgiven past, present, and future, or we can't walk this life. We have to believe the finished work. He said what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Say, he has taken the sin of the world away. He has taken all my sin away. And now he's picking up his disciples, and he's choosing the down and outers, and the least likely, he's not going to the religious which is very amazing. The people that have been studying, the people that really looking at, you know, the scriptures, studying when Messiah would come, and they miss him when he shows up. He came to his own John 1, and his own didn't recognize him. Wow. But what would we expect if the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you're eating that tree, it blinded Adam, did it? So why wouldn't it blind us if, if we're eating of that tree? Anyway, here we go, the 27th verse. With this, Jesus left, and on his way noticed, I love this, noticed a tax collector, Levi, which is also Matthew. He was at the tax, tax office when Jesus said to him, join me on my journey. It's not a question, it's an explanation. Join me on my journey. Wow. Isn't it amazing when Jesus shows up, people's lives just change, except for the religions, of course. They fight, but they their lives just change. And Peter... Wow, he goes fishing, and the next thing you know, he's him and James and John are following Jesus. Wow. And actually, Pam and, and our stories are the same way. One way, one day we're walking one way, thinking things were good. Next day I'm walking totally the opposite way, not even expecting it. He shows up. My life changed. Anyway, 28. He got up, left everything behind, and immediately began his new journey with Jesus. Wow. 29. He then invited Jesus to his house where he prepared a very large banquet to his honor. A great many tax collectors as well as a crowd of people from all walks of life attended the feast. And the scripture that, that I really love is Luke 1 and 2 or Luke says, the tax collectors and the notoriously wicked sinners were coming out to hear what Jesus had to say, and the Pharisees were not happy, indignant, angry. We're going to see the same thing right here. In the commentary, again, Luke draws special attention to the fact that sinners are celebrating their friendship with Jesus. As head of the human race, he represents every human life. Say, he represents my life. He represents my life. He mirrors the original blueprint of my life and my design. He mirrors it. Remember 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. As we see him, he reflects the real us. The most labeled sinners in society were what? All of this irresistibly attracted to him. I mean, we just read all the people around Galilee were leaning in to hear what he had to say and was pushing him into the water, so he got in the boat. Sometimes I watch some rock concerts like Metallica or ACDC and see all these people going insane. 
And then I look at a church service on Facebook and it's half full. I mean, Jesus' words are like ear candy. The word is alive. In fact, in Colossians, it says it's the most resistible, irresistible message, and it resonates with all creation. His message, this message, resonates with everybody. Woo! Where are we here? Okay. What the prostitutes and publicans witnessed in his life mirrored the redeemed integrity of their own. It mirrored theirs. Wow. He knew that what they thought to be their life was life. They, excuse me. They knew. How many people, how many of us lived in the world and knew our life was a lie and there was something better, but we just couldn't get there? We just couldn't do it. You know, I actually feel sorry for people that have some willpower. I have none because I had to like say, say Lord, I can't just do it. Next thing you know, he changed my life and he gave me some willpower, which is one of the fruits of the spirit, by the way, self-control. I could use a little bit more just so you're aware. All right. Where are we? Meanwhile, <laughs> here we go. Here's the big brother, prodigal son. Here's your big brother. There. Meanwhile, there was a lot of muttering going on amongst the Pharisees. Here's big brother. And the law professors, they were obviously not invited to the party and were standing out on the outskirts voicing their disgust in what was happening. How could he eat with them? They then confronted Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I just thought I would read a little bit of Luke 15, 25 to 31. This is about the older brother and the prodigal. Most of us know that story, so I don't need to do the whole thing, but I love it. It says the older brother was returning from the field, working, and approaching those, he heard that, that what sounded like a concert of instruments and choir of voices singing and dancing. Alarmed, he called out one of the boy servants and asked him what this was all about. The boy answered, your brother is here. So your father sacrifices a grain fatted calf to celebrate your brother returning home in good health. Jesus is celebrating the fatted calf with with all these tax collectors and sinners, isn't he? He's having a celebration, and the older brother's not happy. The news enraged the older brother. The voices, they're disgust in what was happening. Who had no desire to join them. Then the father went out and pleaded with him. He answered his father. Now listen to what he says. Consider the many years that I have toiled for you like a slave. I've worked, and I deserve a reward for it. I worked. That's what we've been learning, but it's not a reward. It's a gift. It's an inheritance because you're a child. It is a gift. It is not earned. You try to earn it, this is what happens to you. And at no time did I ever dodge any of your commandments. You never consider rewarding me, rewarding me, with even with a little lamb so I could party with my friends. Wow. And the funny thing is, is it all belonged to him. He said, everything I have is yours. It all belonged to him. He didn't even know it. He thought he was earning it. He didn't even get a lamb. He got nothing. Wow. Here we go. Jesus shows up to, to cut three fishermen. Now he shows up to a tax collector who invites all his tax collector friends that are not very well liked in the community, most likely, because they nobody likes to pay taxes. Let's face it. And they probably weren't the most honest people either. Jesus answered, 
These answers the Pharisees. No, they they confront the disciples, but Jesus answers. Those who are in good health need no physician. The ailing do. And you know something? When you're ailing, you usually know you're ailing. You know, back here it said, in the commentary, it says, they knew what they what they thought to be their life was a lie. They knew it inside. There's a whole lot of people running around right now that know their life is a lie inside. And they're not willing to listen to a condemnation message. They want to hear what God believes to be true about them. You know, and just, just meditate and lavish in the finished work of what Jesus accomplished and what God believes to be true about you in spite of your outward condition. I didn't come to redefine the righteous, but those self-righteous, excuse me. I did not come to redefine the self-righteous, but those who realized they couldn't get it right uh, by themselves. I want to comment on the first part. This is great. He didn't come to redefine the self-righteous. In other words, he didn't come, here's 10 steps to a better marriage. Here's five steps to get closer to God. Here's 20 steps to get up to the mountain of God and get closer to God and get more rewards. That's self-righteousness. Doing works that you deserve some. That's called self-righteousness. Say, I am righteous by faith. I'm on the top of the mountain. I'm co-seated with Christ face-to-face -face with the Father because he put me there. And when did he do it? When I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Ephesians, the second chapter, first verse. That's when he did it. Before I even knew it and without your permission. You're just waking up to where you are. It's like, whoa, how did I get here? Woo! What happened? All right. So he did not come to redefine the self-righteous. He didn't come to give us another works program. But those who realized they couldn't get it right by themselves, I came to awaken sinners to recognize what? Their authentic identity mirrored in a complete realignment of the mind. Metanoia, a radical mind shift. Wow. Now, <laughs> Pam and I were talking about this verse, and I, I went to church every Sunday because I had to, and plus the church I went to, I mean, you were guilt-ridden if you didn't show up because they pounded it in. And I used to, every once in a while, decide I'm going to really get it right, and I'm going to really try what lasted about an hour. And I used to sit and, to sit and think if there, and I maybe I was an agnostic now. I, did, I don't know because I thought, always thought I believed in God, but I used to say, if you're real, I'm in a whole lot of trouble. I'm going down in flames. I used to think that all the time. I'm in a whole lot of trouble. And I just used to think to myself, you know, actually the best the best analogies, this is the same thing. Jesse's youngest daughter, Lydia, was downstairs goofing around and she was hanging on our towel rack. Like, you know, like she's going to do pull-ups or something. Of course, she ripped it out of the wall. And Pam went down there and she said to Pam, she goes, I tried to do good, but I just can't do it. I want it to be good, but I just can't. And that was me. Maybe it was you too. I wanted to do good. I just couldn't. I couldn't do it. Anyway, I came to awaken sinners to recognize their authentic identity mirrored in a complete realignment of the mind. Metanoia. Metanoia. That word in other versions would be repentance. And the word repentance is really metanoia. It's not penitence. It's not. It's changing your mind is what it means. Having a radical mind shift. So anytime you read another version, it says repentance. Like you got to like, you know, think of all the not stupid things you did and feel guilty for a while. Uh-uh. It's 
metanoia, radical mindship. That's the word that they slapped that word on. So when Jesus said, and I've said this before, be, he says, repent or metanoia, change your mind. The kingdom of God is here. He was, if we, you know, the old way of thinking, if we would say, repent, the kingdom of God is here, we think, you know, throw, put on sackcloth and ashes and throw up the ashes and think about all the horrible things you did. He wasn't saying that. He's saying, change your mind. You think the kingdom of God is somewhere else? No, it's here. And in Luke 17, 20, he says, it's in you and all around you. You're just not recognizing. So he said, I came to awaken sinners to recognize their authentic identity mirrored in the complete realignment of mind. I'm come to show you who you are. I'm coming to show you who the Father is. I'm the very image of the Father. I'm the perfect image and likeness. And since I am, I'm a, I am a prototype of who you are. We are not the King of kings and Lord of lords, but we're sons and daughters of God. And we're made in God's image and likeness. He came to show us. He's the word incarnate. The word is a person. It's not the Bible. They're the words of Jesus in the Bible, but the word is a person. Now, I'm just going to, the, the commentary is good there. I just want to, I'll just briefly go over it. The word hamatir, the, here it's hamartalos, but it, ha means, with, this is what the word for sin. And a lot of, if you read Strong's, it's going to say without, it says missing the mark, which of course, what does that mean? I mean, <laughs> it says ha without form, meros, without form and a lot of portion. So then the opposite word is, 2 Corinthians 3.18, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Remember, he says, with unveiled face, you know, we, like Moses covered the face to come down to hide the glory. Now we uncover the face so we can see the glory reflected in Christ as in a mirror. We are what? Transfigured into his very own image. The word transfigured is metamorpho. We all learn that word in biology. You remember? Probably you took it as a sophomore in high school. Maybe you took some in college. I did. And metamorpho means, it means the butterfly or the caterpillar becomes a butterfly. Metamorpho is the word meta together and the same morpho, form. It's the opposite. Hamartia is without form. Metamorpho is with his form. It's the opposite. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Hamartia means you believe in a lie about yourself. Jesus came to show you who you are. Now you have metanoia. You see him for who he is, and you're transfigured into his very image, his very own image, which is the perfect image and likeness of God. And if you read that scripture, it goes from glory to glory to glories. And he says, this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. It's not you doing it. It's you just beholding Jesus as the example, like Francois says, they're not the example for you, but an example of you. He's the prototype of the real you. Now. Not someday. Now. Wow. <clears throat> I wish I could take an offering. That was pretty good. I'm just teasing. Here we go. Verse 33. That was good stuff, wasn't it? Well, it pumps me up. Look, look how almost red as my shirt here. Then his critics said to him, why would... Oh, this is great. This is going to be good. This is good. Ready? Then his critics said to him, why would John's disciples frequently fast and make prayerful petitions just as the followers of the Pharisees do, while those close to you are feasting and drinking. There's always a question I get. What do you think about fasting? What do you think about fasting? Should I fast? Should I not fast? Well, you know, I'm going to go on a fast. I'm just going to read the first three lines of the commentary. You know, I don't read all the commentary because of time. And if you're doing the Bible study before, obviously, you're looking at it. And it's, it's all great stuff. I just pick out stuff. 
I think would be go along with it just to keep it rolling a little bit. Now listen to this. You ready? The tradition of fasting and prayers, of petition and supplication, was forged in the idea of, obtain, of obtaining leverage through personal discipline in abstaining from something in order to do what? Prove to deity your sincere earnestness and thereby hopefully persuade his favor. Say, I don't need to persuade his favor I have all of it. I am his son. I'm going to just look what it says here next. So Jesus gives the answer to that fasting question. You guys ready? You want to know if you should fast or not? Here's the answer. Then Jesus said, no one is under any obligation to fast. You can fast if you want to, he says, but you're not under any obligation to fast when there is a bridal banquet in process, a bridal banquet. Least of all, the sons who are taking care of the bridegroom. Over here, what did you say? Well, says, and your followers, the Pharisees said, are feasting and drinking. And Jesus says, yes, there will be days when the bridegroom is taken away from them. In those days, they will have the opportunity to fast. Okay? He was taken away for three days. He came back. He was taken away for a few more. And he came in Pentecost. That's all. He has been separated from us. There has been a wedding feast banquet ever since. If you want to fast, go for it. The only thing I'm going to do fast is eat. Eat, eat, eat. And eat it fast. I'm going to I'm going to, this is what the Pharisees said over here. They are feasting and drinking. Yeah, because I, we're in the wedding feast. And guess what? You're the bride. He's the bridegroom and you're the bride. And who's the center of the wedding in the tradition? You know, the bridegroom, you know, he's looking good. He's got his tuxedo on. But who's the centerpiece of the wedding? It's the bride. It's you. Who's lavished up in this beautiful white dress, hair all done, makeup all done. You know, makeup looking just beautiful. Lost a whole bunch of weight. Got the breasties all popped up. Everything looking hot, right? Think about it. You are the center of the banquet. Why would you want to not eat? Go If you want to fast, and if I offended you, I'm sorry, but I haven't fasted in a long time, and I don't plan on to. Because I am, you know, I the, the bridegroom is not separated from me. The bridegroom is living in me. I am, this is a party. It's not a funeral. There's no separation. You and the Father, the Son and the Spirit are one. You're in union together. You're, you're filled and flooded with God. In fact, you can't even get more of God. Even when you go to heaven, you won't get more of God because you got the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in you right now in bodily form, this form. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. Oh, let's see here. I think I'll calm down. No, that would be fun. All right, this is great. Ready? Now, remember, who's he addressing? There's two kinds of people here. There's the sinners and the tax collectors, and there's the law professors and Pharisees. You got two kinds of people here. And he's addressing the Pharisees. And he, Now, remember, when he tells a parable, it's something that we can see external of what is something that's invisible in the kingdom. All over the Bible, and he's telling parables, or even doing prophetic acts, like cleaning out the temple, all those things, they are something external that we can see of a spiritual principle that we can't see. But does that make sense? So here's one of those principles, the parable. 
Then Jesus proceeds to illustrate the following point, again using the powerful parable analogy. No one would tear off, nobody would do this, a piece of cloth from a new garment in order to patch up an old worn out garment. You had a brand new garment and you got an old garment and you got, here's the pair of pants and here's an old pair of pants. Yeah, I just think I'll take a piece off of the new pants and put on the old pants. No one would do that. This will not only spoil the new garment, but patch, and the patch won't even match the old. It looks stupid. Now, there's two garments here. There's the tax collectors and sinners, and there's old Pharisees and law professors. It will be such a waste to pour new wine into old skin bottles. In other words, pouring the new covenant into those old law professors, the, the people that are so steeped in the old covenant. Now, why? This is the reason it would be dumb to do it. That's why he's not doing it. He's not paying attention. He's pouring it into new wineskins. He's pouring it into Matthew and Levi. He's pouring it into John and James and Peter and other people, right? The new wine, this is the reason you don't do it. The new wine will burst the old bottles and spill the wine on the ground. In other words, the wine is wasted. The wine is wasted. He says, new wine is stored and preserved in fresh wine skins. Thus, both wine and skins are equally treasured. Now think about it. What is wine? If you say, I am a new wine skin, and I'm filled with the new wine. Remember the wedding of Canaan? He served the, he went to the bridegroom. The head waiter went to the bridegroom, who's symbolically Jesus, even though it's, right? And he says, you, most people serve the, the good wine first. And when everybody's drunk for you, they can't tell the difference. They give the crappy wine. He says, but you, you've kept the good wine for last. The new covenant is the good wine. It's nothing like the old wine. And what does wine do to you when you drink it? Oh, do you think maybe it makes you happy? Do you think it makes you care a little less about things in the world? Does it make you more social? Does it make you more loving? I understand. If you drink a ton of it, it can make you horrible. But my point is, in other words, this new wine affects the way you behave, the way you act. It affects your desires. It has an effect on you. You're filled with the new covenant, the new wine of grace. Yet, he says, you continue to reason from the familiarity with the old mindset. And thus have no appetite for the new. He's talking to the Pharisees. And I'm going to read the Amplified here because I love it. On this verse anyway. Is it? And no one, this is, here's what Jesus is saying. And no one after drinking old wine immediately desires new wine. For he says, the old is good enough. Or better. You know, there's a lot of people that are Christians or the same, are drinking old wine. And they said, this is good enough. I don't want anything new. Not me. I want to be filled with the new treasures of truth and goodness and the grace and understanding who I am, understanding who Jesus is, understanding who the Father is. In John 17, 3, it says, this is eternal life, to know the Father and the Son. The more I know the Son, the more I know the Father, and the more I enjoy the very agape, the love of God and the kingdom of God. I'll read the commentary here, and then we'll finish. The point Jesus is reinforcing about the wineskin, this is Francois' commentary, is the contrast between two mindset systems. The old religious system of managing personal behavior and performance. I'm sure y'all never did that. Trying to manage, 
be a good boy, be a good girl, and then you can't, right? And then you're guilt-ridden, guilt-ridden, guilt-ridden. But then we have a workaround. We can go and tell Jesus how bad we've been. And somehow in Hebrews, the eighth chapter, says he remembers our sins no more. He's always said, you're, you're confessing what you did. He said, I don't remember what you did. In the word confession there is homologio, or homologio, something like that. And the best word for logio is logos, word. Homo means the same. Log logeo means to speak. So in other words, when you have a problem, you speak what the logos says about your sin. What does he say about it? As far as gone, as far as east is from the west, behold, the Lamb takes away the sin of the world. I've forgiven you and made you perfect, forgiven you past, present, and future. Your sin's been dealt with. You, you have redeemed innocence forever. Anyway, I got to start over. The point Jesus is reinforcing is the contrast between two mindset systems. The old religious system of managing personal behavior and performance with its sin-conscious currency of judgment and reward. Versus, this is the new wine, the entire new messianic message of what? Favor, forgiveness, restored innocence, and union with our bridegroom. Gift language offends reward language. Say this, I have received the messianic message of God's favor because I'm his son and because of what he did, his forgiveness, his my restored innocence, and my union with the bridegroom, which is Jesus. I'm one with Christ. Gift language offends reward language. That was fun.